Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and I'm your host each week as we get into the political scene here in the United States. So it's been an interesting week uh, this past week. After uh, weeks of back and forth uh, accusations and, and wrangling and negotiations, uh, it appears that uh, Saturday night around 9 o'clock, uh, a tentative deal was reached between Democrats and Republicans on uh, actions for uh, the debt ceiling as well as uh, some budget cuts that the Republicans were holding uh, the debt ceiling hostage to uh, what we ended up with, at least so far as we know, based on what's been released on the, and the text of the proposed uh, agreement, which still has to be passed by both the House and the Senate, uh, which, according to information sources, is something, something that is not a definite uh, fait accompli. So we will see what happens with the debt ceiling as uh, the next few days proceed. So let's kind of give a light recap of what has transpired. Uh, As you're probably aware, uh, the debt ceiling, which is the allocated amount of money that the U.S. government can spend to pay for uh, bills that it has occurred uh, up to uh, this point in the fiscal year, Uh, was due to expire or run out of funding from the government uh, originally on June 1st, as projected by Janet Yellen, uh, but uh, was tweaked a little bit late last week uh, to extend it out as far as June 5th. Uh, As you know, if the U.S. had defaulted on its debt ceiling payment, uh, and, and think of it in terms of you're defaulting on your credit card payment. Uh, the the full faith and credit of the United States of America would have come into question and it would have generated uh, drastic economic consequences, not just here in this country, but around the world, as the United States dollar is considered a basis currency for most of the nations in the world. So what transpired was uh, the uh, Democrats, the the Biden administration and uh, representatives of the House Republicans uh, who are in control of the House had been in negotiations for a few weeks now uh, trying to iron out details on exactly how the debt ceiling uh, was to be taken care of and uh, what was to become of some uh, budget cutting measures that the Republicans uh, were using as a uh, a hostage chip uh, against paying the the deficit or essentially defaulting on the uh, credit of the United States. So with much back and forth wrangling between the two parties, um, accusations and uh, intractabilities on both sides, uh, ultimately, it came down to uh, almost an 11th hour uh, resolution uh, in principle, and then a tentative agreement uh, was uh, presented by the negotiators 
uh, to the uh, Biden administration and the House Republican leadership uh, that they had, in fact, achieved an accord on how the debt ceiling would be handled and also what was to be the status of the numerous budget budget cuts that the Republicans uh, had proposed as requirements before they would agree to raise the debt limit. So we're going to take a look at at least uh, the information that has been uh, made public so far. And essentially, uh, the text of the agreement is available. Uh, you can go to uh, the website. Uh, it is docs.house.gov. That's D-O-C-S dot H-O-U-S-E dot G-O-V. And you can read it yourself. Uh, fair warning. It's in uh, legislative ease uh, and basically represents uh, the the changes that are being made to existing uh, budget law in order to accommodate payment of the debt ceiling. Uh, side note, uh, what you find when you look a lot at legislative bills is they don't rewrite a whole new text document of the bill. Rather, these bills just tend to uh, point out what changes, what additions, what deletions, uh, and what edits are being made in the existing language uh, of the budget bill uh, that is currently law in the country. So that being said, uh, what we find is that uh, although there are some uh, budget cuts uh, that will be made, uh, they fell far short of what the uh, conservative wing of the Republican Party wanted to see. And we'll we'll touch on that in a few. Uh, but they also uh, gave the Democrats what they were looking for is an elevation or an addressing of the debt ceiling uh, limit, which was due to uh, be breached uh, on or about the 5th of June, which is uh, what early next week. So uh, let's go through and um, go over what uh, actually is in this proposed agreement. And again, this is based on uh, news coming out of CBS News uh, on uh, May 28th, uh, around 7.30-ish, 8 o'clock. And uh, what it says is, um, you know, with a few days to go before the U.S. was projected to hit the debt ceiling and run out of funds to pay the nation's bills, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden have struck a deal to suspend the debt limit and Congress is expected to vote as soon as this week. Now, according to CBS News, here's what the agreement entails. And I'll, I'll do the highlights. Uh, you can find the article at cbsnews.com. Um, so the first item it mentions is suspending the debt ceiling. And what this is, is the debt limit would be suspended until the first quarter of 2025, which places it beyond the 2024 elections. Rather than raising the debt ceiling by a specific dollar amount, suspending it allows Congress to define a period of time before the debt limit would need to be addressed again. Taking the approach they have ensures that it can't be used for political advantage during the campaigns, and it leaves the next fight over the debt ceiling for the new administration and Congress 
soon after the 2024 elections. So quickly what that means is uh, suspending the debt limit means that uh, basically until the first quarter of 2025, there will be, quote, no debt limit. That is, you know, monies can be spent uh, according to the guidelines laid out in the underlying law, uh, but it, it doesn't set a finite limit. That detail will be addressed uh, again, first quarter 2025, uh, and you know we'll see what happens at that point. That's actually a a pressure relief uh, because again, it means that uh, the debt ceiling is not going to be able to be weaponized by either side uh, in the upcoming campaigns. Although between you and me, uh, I still think they are that at least the Republicans are going to try to weaponize it. Uh, against the Democrats, but we'll see. Um, the next item that it lists are spending caps. Uh, one of the key components of the Republican proposal on the, the debt ceiling and uh, the budget uh, was uh, capping uh, federal spending uh, and dramatic cuts to domestic spending unrelated to defense. The White House proposed keeping spending at fiscal year 2023 levels, that is what they're spending right now, as uh, compared to the Republicans who had sought a 10-year cap on spending at the levels under the 2022 budget uh, and, and basically had a cap on how much increase uh, could occur in federal spending over that time. So this deal does not return spending to those 2022 levels. Uh, instead, it keeps uh, non-defense spending uh, about flat uh, with current 2023 levels for all of 2024. Remember, we're talking about fiscal years here. Uh, there are no budget caps after 2025. Uh, it will just set spending targets. For 2025, the agreement allows a small increase in non-defense spending of about 1%. Uh, another issue that was brought forward was uh, reforming energy permitting. So the negotiating teams agreed on overhauling the country's permitting laws, uh, an issue long advocated by moderate Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, the provision would streamline the environmental review process, des designating a single lead agency to be tasked with environmental review that corresponds with a clear public timeline. Boiling that down, presently permitting for energy-related projects rather, uh, can take uh, as long as up to seven years uh, to go through the process. What uh, it, it is intended with this change is to try and uh, reduce that to uh, one to two years, which would allow new projects to move forward quicker. Um, you know, Republicans are saying, you know, it's the first significant reform to National Environmental Pro Pilo Policy Act, excuse me, since 1982. Um, so another element uh, what it would do is unspent, it would deal with unspent COVID funds. Uh, COVID relief funds that uh, have not been spent will be returned to the government, a proposal made by Republicans uh, and was accepted by the White House. Uh, 
because, and in, and in fact, the COVID public health emergency officially ended in early May, uh, funding that has, was allocated for uh, COVID uh, that remains unspent will be, in fact, uh, clawed back into the government. The exact amount's unclear, but the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, uh, estimates it to be about $30 billion. Work requirements, and this was a controversial uh, measure that the Republicans uh, were, were adamant on getting into the deal. Uh, they sought to toughen and add work requirements for able-bodied adults without minor dependents applying for entitlements and benefits, including Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, and Medicaid. The White House uh, was uh, not in agreement with that and pushed back. Uh, so the final deal does not add work requirements for Medicaid. So, you know, uh, currently people who are eligible for SNAP do not have work requirements after the age of 50. The deal would raise that age to 54. At the same time, SNAP would see temporary changes that eliminate work requirements for veterans and those experiencing homelessness regardless of age. Another big item that the uh, Republicans were uh, worked up over was uh, an increase uh, in funding to the IRS over uh, 10 years uh, in order for the IRS to modernize, add additional uh, workers, both office-based and field-based, uh, in order and in part to increase its effectiveness and reach in fighting um, uh, tax cheats. Uh, Republicans wanted $71 billion over the next decade to be cut, uh, passing legislation to do so upon taking the majority in the House, and including the same cut in the debt ceiling bill the House GOP just passed last month. Uh, they were targeting tens of thousands of new agents, uh, even though that the, the funding was more than that, um, that you know, it was to you know, improve systems, uh, add additional uh, customer service and customer-facing uh, representatives, and so forth. So, you know, there, there was that. Uh, another agreement uh, that was uh, on, you know, in response to something the Republicans were looking at was cuts to Medicare, ben, no, no, let me try that again, was cuts to veterans' medical care. Uh, the agreement fully funds medical care for veterans, including for the Toxic Exposure Fund uh, at the president's requested 2024 fiscal year levels, uh, an increase over what is currently being spent. Uh, of course, uh, that was important to President Biden as um, it, it was connected to his late son Bo's exposure to toxic burn pits to his diagnosis of cancer. So those were the, the hot button issues that were included. Now, some things that were uh, rejected in the proposal, uh, rescinding climate-related provisions from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so the agreement doesn't make changes to the uh, Reduction Act's clean energy and climate provisions, like clean energy projects in low-income communities. 
uh, Republicans had looked to repeal several of the key provisions of that IRA uh, proposal. Uh, there are no new tax increases in the deal, which Mr. Biden had suggested and Republicans rejected. Uh, affecting the cancellation of student debt relief uh, by President Biden, Republicans demanded that Mr. Biden's student death, debt relief be rescinded, uh, but the bill leaves it in place. So, you know, those are just a, a few of the the highlights of what came out of this uh, and it, it's clear and you know analysis in the media has reflected this that uh, neither side got all of what it wanted but both sides got some of what they were aiming for um, now it's important to keep in mind that uh, this is a tentative agreement and it is by no means a slam dunk uh, to pass uh, the House of Representatives, uh, particularly uh, in, it, in its current form. Uh, there have been reports circulating that there are uh, many Republican uh, House members who are opposed to uh, this, this final structure of the deal because it eliminates so many of the things that Republicans were demanding uh, the Democrats address in order to proceed with an extension of the debt relief budget. So, you know, it, it is not 100% clear that this is going to breeze through both houses of Congress, even though the deadline uh, currently uh, set at or around June 5th still looms over the whole process. And, you know, uh, if an agreement is not reached and funding for debt payments uh, is exhausted, uh, there still could be catastrophic uh, effects felt in both uh, the domestic arena as well as the world arena uh, from the potential of the U.S. Uh, basically to be late on its payments. So. You know, it, it's clear and what is currently being discussed is exactly how uh, this agreement is going to pass uh, out of the House. And right now it is clear that uh, the the full Republican caucus is not on board with all of this. And it could mean that in order for Speaker McCarthy to get this deal across the finish line, he is going to need to bring in uh, Democratic Congress people uh, in order to vote for it in addition to Republican. Now, on the surface, that would seem to be a, a good thing. Bipartisan passage of bills is always a, uh, a wanted goal when you're talking about legislation. The problem is, is that uh, the deal that Speaker McCarthy made uh, in order to achieve uh, becoming Speaker of the House was, uh, among other things, he agreed to allowing a provision for a single member of Congress uh, to call for uh, what is called a resolution to vacate the seat. Uh, in other words, uh, one individual congressperson, regardless of party, can call for a vote uh, to vote the current speaker out of office and initiate a replacement process for him or her. Uh, 
Now, you know, the, the idea that uh, your job hangs on the thread of a single uh, member uh, is, is something that the uh, right wing and, and the far right wing or the so-called MAGA wing of the Republican Party has quietly threatened uh, Speaker McCarthy with on several occasions uh, just since January, since the, since the Republicans took control of the House. Now, it remains to be seen if there's going to be that one uh, uh, call brought forward based on the results of this negotiation. And, you know, there, there are a couple of uh, congressional members uh, who are extremely upset with Speaker McCarthy uh, and the deal that he and his team negotiated with the Democrats because it falls so far short of the things that you know these ultra-conservatives wanted in terms of program cuts in order to uh, help balance the budget. So, I mean, this deal is uh, described now. We have text, but it is, as I said, uh, in no way, shape, or form an accomplished fact until uh, the House of Representatives uh, votes it through with either a party line uh, majority vote or a bipartisan vote. Either way, uh, 218 votes are needed in order for this to pass out of the House and then go on to the Senate. Now, we, we will see what transpires over the next couple of days, but you know there, there are some elements that need to be taken into consideration here. Uh, number one, uh, it does take time to, to finalize the, the text of legislative bills. Uh, the current uh, agreement is something around 100 pages, and you know it, it has to be written, formatted, you know, put into the proper legalese, etc. And the um, another agreement that McCarthy made to obtain the speakership was he promised to allow uh, 72 hours for members of the House to review a bill before it comes to a vote. Now, we're sitting uh, as of the airing of this show at May 30th, which means we're roughly talking about six days, uh, five or six days before the, uh, the June 5th deadline is hit. And you know, there's three days of that will be for review. And then there will need to be uh, in rapid-fire succession, uh, a, a vote uh, to agree in the House and then a, a vote to pass the bill out of the Senate before it can go to President Biden for his signature. So, you know, while the, the heaviest part of the lift is done in that an agreement has been reached, uh, the, the detail work and the other task that is part of this in terms of getting it out of Congress and onto the president's desk is something that still needs to be accomplished and remains to be seen uh, what's going to happen with that. Uh, as I said, uh, there could be as many as 160 additional votes needed 
by the Republicans in order to get to 218 votes. So a, a substantial number of Democrats might need to come on board with this in order to, uh, to bring this across the finish line. So uh, while the, the end of the, the line, the, the, you know, the finish line is visible, uh, there is still some distance to get there and there are still some obstacles and hurdles uh, to clear in order to get uh, the, the debt ceiling and, and budget issues addressed. Now, with all that being said, the, the idea that uh, the debt ceiling would be suspended uh, is, you know, in, in my opinion, probably the most important part of this. And not just because it represents the full faith and credit of the United States government in paying its bills, but it takes that, that pressure of you know, having to fight over uh, how much the ceiling is going to be raised and how long it's going to be raised for. Uh, all of that gets pushed down the road to after the elections, uh, which, as the article says, and which I said earlier, uh, takes it out of it being a campaign battle issue. With that being said, if you believe that, uh, as the statement goes, that this agreement will take the debt ceiling out of an argument in the upcoming campaigns, then um, I have a bridge in Brooklyn that I'm looking to sell for a very reasonable price. So uh, reach out and we'll work out a deal. Um, it, this is something that even if an agreement is reached uh, and you know the, the debt ceiling is averted, the process itself is going to be a campaign issue. Make no mistake about that. Uh, both sides are going to be talking about what they did to accomplish their, quote, victory, close quote, uh, in the debt ceiling battle. Uh, the Republicans are going to tout how uh, they got the Democrats to agree to uh, budget cutting measures that they wanted and the Democrats are going to um, take claim and celebrate the fact that the need to set a debt ceiling limit has been pushed down the road until after the election. So, you know, the, the upshot is uh, this is a campaign issue. It will continue to be a campaign issue. And anyone telling you anything else uh, is really trying to sell you something. So, you know, it, it, it points out what the fundamental dysfunction is uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans uh, at the federal level and actually uh, can extend down to the local level. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the second half. Um, the, the element that I'm, I'm explaining is that politics in this country at this point in time is very much played as a zero-sum game. What do I mean by that? It means uh, that political uh, uh, elected officials are treating, you know, the fact that, you know, I win, you lose is the overriding nature of this beast. And as long as uh, we have this zero-sum philosophy uh, at the heart of how our 
political negotiations and agreements and deal making is done, we're going to continue to see these kind of issues um, raised over the, the country's head and uh, have us being held hostage. Uh, so for, for Republicans out there, uh, let me just state this. If you believe that uh, the, the budget cuts that were proposed, that the uh, proposals that Republicans have been making over you know, the last uh, you know, 10 plus years uh, only affect Democrats or are solely in place to, quote, own the libs, close quote, then you are not paying attention to the realities on the ground here in the United States. Budget cuts to veterans' benefits are going to impact Republicans. Uh, budget cuts to um, you know any of the programs that were were mentioned uh, to you know uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, to uh, you know temporary assistance to needy families. Uh, to SNAP benefits. Uh, these last two, keep in mind that um, in this country, uh, minority people are not the majority of recipients of SNAP and TANF benefits. So if you as Republican voters are you know, jumping up and down for joy uh, because it looks like uh, your elected officials have scored a victory over, you know, those doggone liberal Democrats, uh, realize that this is going to impact you as well. So in a sense, you're voting against your own interest. And for Democrats, realize that the, the uh, process you have followed of, you know, basically playing a, a softball, genteel approach in dealing with the Republicans uh, is not, has not, and does not work well. Uh, this is battle. You need to to bring your A game to the table and, you know, pick your point and stand there and and fight for your positions. Uh, it, it may mean whether you're Republican or Democrat that you're going to lose some elections or, you know, you may lose majorities. But at the end of the day, you were sent to your elected office to serve the people of the United States. And the more that you play the game of, you know, serving the political interests and the money interests and, you know, all of the other things that we hear about every day uh, is the norm, uh, you are going to suffer along with everyone else. So, you know, if you are poor, if you are white, if you are a rural resident, uh, don't think that, you know, these proposals only affect the liberal Democrats that live, you know, on either coast or in the big cities in this country because they affect all of us. And we need to think about it in those terms uh, and realize that we need to do what is best for the country as a whole, not just for one political party over another. So at, with that point, let's take our break here. When we come back on the other side, uh, we're going to continue this discussion and um, talk about some things that are occurring out there that illustrate the point I just made. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media, and we'll be right back after the break. 
Responsible gun owners want responsible gun ownership laws. You know who else does? Responsible parents, sisters, brothers, and friends. Responsible bosses, employees, teachers, and students. Cat people, dog people, horse people, and even responsible fish people. Simply put, responsible Americans want responsible gun ownership laws. Learn more about States United to Prevent Gun Violence at SUPGV.org. And we're back. Welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. So uh, if you happen to know me or are familiar with me, you'll know that I have admittedly owned the fact that I am a geek. Um, I also admittedly own the fact that I am a huge fan of the Star Trek franchise. Uh, Now, before you roll your eyes and and hit the stop button, hear me out. I I have a point to make. So in the in the Star Trek franchise, uh, starting with one of the movies, uh, there was a line that uh, was uh, said by the character Spock, and uh, he he says to the character of Kirk, "The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one." Uh, essentially, uh, saying that you know a a democratic process is a process of compromise. And what we have seen transpire in American politics over the last few decades has kind of turned that expression on its head uh, to read more like uh, the needs of the few or of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Uh, This can be seen in the fact that uh, a, a, a few dozen uh, representatives held up confirmation for the Speaker of the House until you know that he gave up concessions, uh, basically turning over governorship of that body uh, to one individual who has the power to uh, initiate the vote to remove him from power. We have seen the same thing in our states, where a handful of uh, vocal legislators um, have, you know, opposed and affected changes in broad public policy that would benefit the majority of individuals in that uh, given state or community. And it's, it's even gone so far, there was a recent article uh, that talks about a, uh, a book written by uh, Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman uh, who you may recall uh, read her poem, The Hill We Climb, at President Biden's inauguration um, back in January. Well, that book has been removed from the elementary school shelves, uh, which was the audience she intended it to be written for, and has been moved to the middle school shelves because one parent thought that its content uh, was uh, not only inappropriate for elementary school students, but inappropriate for schools in general. Uh, so there was an article about that that came across my desk, and it got me to thinking that you know we are becoming a society where, a- as much as we talk about uh, democracy being a a a philosophy of compromise, uh, it is becoming the case where single uh, individuals or very small groups of individuals uh, are actually 
running the operations uh, that govern the vast majority of Americans. If you think about it, there are 330 million people in, uh, give or take, 330, 340 million people in this country. Uh, we are governed uh, collectively by, you know, 536 uh, elected officials at the federal level and, you know, a, a few tens of thousands of individuals at the state and local level. So essentially, the few are, in fact, uh, exercising needs that outweigh, in many cases, the needs of the greater majorities. We've seen this in terms of uh, voter restrictions. We've seen it in terms of education reforms. We've seen it in terms of uh, giving uh, outsize relevance to smaller groups of people through such uh, terms as gerrymandering. Uh, what we have is uh, the scenario where more and more uh, of our governing is being done by fewer and fewer people uh, for various reasons, including, uh, you know, a, a, a voter apathy that is present in our country and including, you know, mechanisms by uh, these uh, minority numbers of individuals to uh, control the narrative. You know, um, the Republican parties uh, now control effectively the government process in uh, 23 states, if I'm not mistaken. And yet uh, they are a uh, representative minority of the population, meaning that uh, there are fewer Republicans in, in most states than there are Democrats and independents, yet Republicans control through mach uh, machinations on, on process and you know, getting laws passed or, or rules passed that favor their retention of power. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, as we've seen over you know, the last uh, 40 or 50 years, uh, where Republicans don't like the way a political system operates, they don't, um, you know, uh, vote to change the system in so much as they will uh, vote or increase their efforts to eliminate the thing that they object to. And I can give you a few examples. I'll give you one that came out uh, this past week. Uh, in, uh, again, another of my favorite states, Texas. Uh, the Texas governor has gotten a bill abolishing the position of the Harris County election chief. Uh, one of the things that uh, the Texas legislature did was to uh, eliminate the position of the election chief and return it to control of the Secretary of State and, I'm sorry, to the, in the county in particular, to the tax assessor and county clerk, uh, which are both elected offices, which means that, you know, whoever controls the majority in that county will be able to determine who governs over the election process. So, you know, as, as one of the representatives uh, said, you know, because 
they had lost uh, the elections in that county. Uh, you know, uh, Reverend Jarvis Johnson said, your party loses elections and you guys lose your mind. Uh, and uh, Jar Representative Johnson is a Democrat. Um, you know, the election bills uh, are, you know, processed and, and go through. Uh, but if there is a, a controversy or if there is a question about, you know, the way the election was run or there is a problem with the machinery or, or so forth, then the problem is moved to the election commissioner whose job it is, is to oversee making that situation right. Uh, we have seen similar things happen in uh, another of my favorites, the great state of Florida, where uh, in order to facilitate uh, the Florida governor uh, pursuing the nomination, the Republican nomination for president, uh, the, the little pesky rule that says while you're a sitting public official, you can't run for higher public office. Well, you know, uh, DeSantis didn't like that rule, so he got the legislature to abolish it. Uh, essentially, if, you know, they don't like the way a system operates, rather than work to create a, an effective and more honest change to the system, they eliminate the rule, making it unnecessary to have that system in place. Uh, we saw the same thing uh, in um, other states where there were uh, issues around the uh, woman's right to choose issue, where rather than uh, find a, a common sense, uh, humane approach to dealing with uh, women's reproductive rights, particularly in cases where the health uh, and, and safety of the mother is involved, they have gone, you know, full scorched earth and basically banned, you know, uh, medical procedures altogether. So, you know, it, it, it is clear that the, the political system uh, in our country uh, is at worst broke, at best dysfunctional uh, in either regard, in much need of you know, overhaul and change, which has to come from the people. Now, you know, with the voting restrictions and gerrymandering and you know, uh, voter intimidation that we've seen in recent years notwithstanding, uh, that still should not and must not stop us from you know getting to the polls exercising our right to vote uh, and making sure that our vote gets counted by you know whatever means necessary uh, that we get that done and let me give you another example and this one comes out of gallatin tennessee uh, and a news article reported by the associated press uh, and you know it talks about the hard right shift in this county um, and uh, talks about a group there called the Sumner County Constitutional Republicans. Uh, so this group, uh, they had a, a group of them sworn in last fall. The new majority of the Sumner County Commission in Tennessee acted to update one of its official documents. 
the new version said county operations would not only be orderly and efficient, but, quote, most importantly, reflective of the Judeo-Christian values inherent in the nation's founding, end quote. Now, realize that the Constitution of the United States clearly specifies that the United States uh, is a... Uh, is a, a secular nation, that there is no national religion uh, associated with the United States of America. Uh, but this group uh, is part of a growing number of groups around the country that are looking to change that, that actively want to uh, convert the United States of America into a Judeo-Christian country. Uh, and, you know, we should all be concerned about that. Uh, there is a separation of church and state uh, written into our Constitution for a reason, in that uh, the founders believed that religion uh, should not serve a role in governing over the people. So, you know, it, it, it ties in with the various, uh, you know, scandals and tensions we've had over the last few years from, you know, the former president's lies about the 2020 election to others that has driven some local election officials around the country uh, who have become so frustrated with the process that has developed that they end up resigning their positions, which really is kind of a, a pyrrhic victory because what ends up happening is those vacancies are then filled with even more of these ultra-conservative uh, legislators. So, you know, the, the, the data that's out there, uh, and if we look at the census data for Sumner County, where this, this community is located, um, shows that of a population of nearly 204,000, that it grew 10, 22% between the 2010 and 2020 censuses, driven in part by transplants from California and Texas who were lured by a mix of conservative politics, lower housing prices, and no state income tax. The county is dominated by Republicans and backed former President Trump with 69% of the vote in 2020. So that being said, um, you know, the, the county has a, a new history of being you know, very conservative, and this uh, constitutional conservative group uh, looks to be taking point on that process uh, as we go forward. Keep in mind that there is still an active effort underway in this country to, uh, to create a second constitutional convention in which uh, the Constitution of the United States would be um, either A, heavily edited, B, um, heavily redacted and restricted, or C, uh, thrown out and rewritten entirely. Uh, and that would be under the, the guidance of the Constitutional Committee uh, that would be formed. Now, as I said, there are roughly 23, if I'm not mistaken, uh, states right now under active uh, Republican control. Uh, if they get to 
the number that they need in order to constitute uh, this convention, then it, it would end being the changes to our Constitution up to and including, as they've said, the elimination of federal oversight into uh, state and local uh, elections uh, and and other things right now that are the that have the potential rather of being highly discriminatory uh, against people uh, that they don't like. So you know we are definitely in a battle. We need to keep the pressure on our elected officials, whether you know they are you know of the party that we are or in the opposite party to make sure that they understand that you know while it may be difficult while it may be a struggle that the people will not stop until this country returns to its root of a uh, representative democracy so you know keep aware keep in mind uh, we have ongoing homework that we need to do and let me remind you it's not just uh, political issues that uh, we're seeing the this impact in uh, a few episodes back, we talked about these uh, legislative uh, boilerplate uh, houses that generate uh, generic legislation that they then send out to their members at the state level and local level uh, for uh, adoption into state rules and regulations and state laws. Uh, this is another example uh, has popped up on the radar uh, and this one is uh, dealing with the issue of uh, transgender health care for young people where there's legislation in several states uh, that is, if not already on the books, uh, is close to being on the books or is proposed to be put on the books that would allow the state to determine uh, the care that a uh, transgender youth, a minor, would receive taking that control away from that child's parents. Let that sink in for a second. So if, if you're the parent of a minor child and you, know, you uh, believe that your child uh, should receive uh, some level of uh, care and attention uh, relating to a transgender issue, whether it's, you know, therapy or counseling uh, or, you know, even all the way up, perhaps uh, given age considerations, uh, surgery, uh, the state is going to make that decision, not you as the parent. Um, and, you know, for those of you out there that have uh, children, uh, you recognize the danger in that and the slippery slope that that leads us to. Uh, there was already legislation uh, that was put forward, and we've talked about it here on this show, where there are, are some uh, jurisdictions where if the state believes that uh, it is in the best interest of uh, the child and not the parents, the state would come in and remove uh, that uh, child uh, who you know is is expressing ideas about being transgender uh, from their rightful parents 
uh, or uh, remove a non-transgender child from parents who may be uh, transgender. So, you know, the, the issue is uh, beginning to surface in many different areas of uh, the American culture scape. And it, it is something that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, I'm not advocating, you know, one way or the other. Although, as a parent, I, I, find, it abhor- <laughs> I find it disgusting that the state believes that it has a better understanding of how to raise my child than I do. So, you know, let's make sure that we're paying attention to that. You know, as we say on this show, we've got to make sure that we are, are looking at the information sources uh, we're digesting, that we are getting information from as many different sources as possible, and, you know, that we are digging wider and deeper to make sure that we educate and inform ourselves so that we can then exercise our rights to vote and make our voices heard uh, in the most intelligent manner possible. So this past week also saw the formal announcement of his candidacy for the Republican nomination for president of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, and, and as he now begins his battle in earnest, uh, to uh, to take uh, overtake and uh, replace former President Donald Trump as the Republican nominee for president in 2024, he's still in the midst of an ongoing uh, feud with uh, the Disney Corporation, uh, trading back and forth lawsuits and and allegations and news stories. Um, as as we've seen. Uh, the 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 flack from that is spreading far and wide in the Sunshine State, uh, and has led to uh, laws that he is proposing uh, to impact the status of immigrants in that state uh, to uh, try and exercise control over the land upon which uh, Disney World sits. Uh, and, you know, as a result of that battle, uh, he is creating a huge economic and uh, uh, work impact in that state. Uh, as you know, or as you may know, um, Florida is visitors is visited by more than 137 and a half million uh, tourists a year um, and supports 1.6 million full time and part time jobs. Uh, through that tourism industry, uh, visitors spend you know 98.8 billion dollars in Florida in 2019, uh, and expected that last year's figures will be higher as the state opened up uh, even further uh, after or or as COVID wound down. So the NAACP, along with uh, the League of United Latin Citizens or LULAC and Equality Florida, a gay rights advocacy group, uh, issued travel advisories for the Sunshine State uh, last week, uh, early last week, and basically said that, uh, tells tourists that before traveling to Florida, they should understand the state of Florida devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and the challenges faced by African-Americans and other communities of color. Uh, They are warning 
uh, and Hispanic uh, visitors are also being warned by LULAC uh, and uh, gay and LGBTQ uh, visitors are being warned by uh, Equality Florida that the state is hostile to your presence, uh, in other words, and uh, you should exercise uh, a lot of care and actually consider perhaps uh, going to other uh, vacation locations in other states. Uh, the, the Disney Corporation and uh, Governor DeSantis are continuing their, their public battle uh, and it looks like there's little chance of it ending anytime soon. Uh, so we will have to see how this impacts uh, the tourism state of play uh, in Florida. But my expectation or, or my belief is that the effects of this are going to begin to spread into other areas. And in fact, we're already seeing that based on other laws uh, and other uh, guidance that DeSantis is giving to his legislature. Uh, and I chose that word. Uh, intentionally his legislature uh, he believes that he has total control it is a uh, a bulletproof majority for the Republicans in that state so you know what he says essentially goes for the most part and it, that's been driving you know the the book bans that we we mentioned earlier and you know other uh, elements of things that he is doing to make uh, essentially people of color not feel welcome in the state of Florida. Uh, and as he is a presidential candidate now, uh, the risk becomes that should he be successful in that endeavor, that his goal will be to expand that Florida state of mind to the rest of the country. And uh, to be truthful, there are, are a lot of people out there who are open and receptive to the ideas that DeSantis brings to the table. So, you know, something more that we need to watch out for, uh, something more that we need to make sure that we are educated and informed about what is going on and that we are communicating with our circle of friends and with, you know, our, uh, our contact list that you know this is what's going on this is what the damage could be and you know whatever means we need to take we need to find a way to elect officials that reflect our our way of thinking uh regardless of which side of the aisle you're on um but you know there there is definitely room for a a a more compassionate approach to conservative politics in this country. So we'll keep an eye on it for you. Uh, that's what we do here on Fired Up. And our final story going out the door, of course, we join uh, the rest of the, the music and entertainment world in mourning the passing of uh, the queen of rock and roll uh, music legend, Tina Turner who uh, died peacefully after a long illness at her home in Switzerland at the age of 83. Uh, there's probably no one on the planet who has not been uh, touched by or danced to or, or reveled in the high energy 
uh, music that she brought to us uh, over a career that spanned nearly 50 years. Uh, she started out as uh, half of the, the lead for the Ike and Tina Turner Review, and after a uh, well-documented uh, uh, breakup and divorce from her husband Ike after years of abuse, struck out on her own uh, in the young, younger people-dominated realm of uh, rock music uh, at the age of 44 and literally relaunched an entire new career and new generations of fans uh, for her music, uh, myself included. So, you know, it, it's with sadness that we, we mourn her passing, but it's with joy that we realize that we have just so much of her music and her energy that lives on uh, that we can tap into uh, at any, any time we want. Rest in peace, Tina Turner. Uh, we will miss you. There will never be another one like you. And we uh, just will live along with you in your music. So with that being said, uh, we'll uh, wrap it up there. Everybody, please stay safe. Have a great summer uh, as we've now crossed over Memorial Day and we are, quote, officially, close quote, into summer. Please be safe. Uh, and as always, um, I look forward to hearing from you. Please send your comments to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. And uh, with that, we will take our leave. Thank you, everybody. I look forward to bringing another conversation your way in seven days. Mm-hmm.